You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. All right. Good morning, church. So as Jason just laid out, we're going to be talking about divorce. You might be thinking, why did they give me this topic, seeing how it's my first time preaching up here? Well, if you can believe it, I actually chose this topic. I chose this topic because I'm really passionate, one, about marriage, my own marriage, and also the holy covenant that God laid out since the beginning. I'm also really passionate about correctly handling God's word when it comes to really difficult subjects such as divorce. So I'm really excited today to have the opportunity to talk about divorce. So before we get into exactly what the Bible has to say about divorce, I first want to introduce you to a man named John. Now John was an elder at his local church. John had a wife and three beautiful young kids. John, however, had a problem. Him and his wife grew to have a really rough marriage. They started to fight daily, and they grew to resent each other. John spoke to his friends and family, but no advice seemed to help the situation. Years later, John and his wife finally decided to get divorced. They just didn't see any other way. John knew that God wouldn't approve of the decision he was making, But what else was John supposed to do? What are we supposed to do when things just aren't working out? What do we do when the best option for our happiness is to go against God's word rather than towards it? I hope to answer these questions and many more as we get into the subject. But first, I'd like to open up in prayer. God, I ask that everything I say would not be my truth, but your truth. I ask you to speak through me, and I ask for wisdom and discernment in everything that this church preaches. I ask for help with all the different summer series topics that we're going to cover, and I ask specifically for your help when it comes to this topic. We love you, God, and we trust you. In your son's name I pray, amen. So before we take a look back at John's situation, I want to first talk about how we view the Bible. To do that, I want to look at the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. So stay with me for a second. But in the movies, Pirates of the Caribbean, they use this thing called the Pirate Code. And the Pirate Code is basically a book of rules and procedures that the pirates are supposed to follow. Rules such as any man who falls behind is left behind or every crew member has to get an equal share of the treasure, or the right of parlay, which is famous in the movie. If you don't know the right of parlay, it basically says that if you're a pirate who is plundering and pillaging, and you come to a person who says to you, parlay, it means you are not to harm them, and that they are to be brought before the captain to negotiate, thus completing the parlay. But in the movies, you'll find there's a problem when you mix pirates and rules together. In this video we're about to see, there's a woman who's negotiating with the captain of a pirate ship, and let's see what happens when she tries to keep him accountable to the code. Wait. 
So we see in this clip how the pirates react when what they are supposed to do based on the code and what they don't want to do is based on the code. They usually choose the thing that. Let me say that again. <laughs> we see in this clip how the pirates react when what they're supposed to do and what they don't want to do line up when it comes to the code. In the movies, the pirates will often say stuff like Captain Barbosa just said, saying that the rules are actually just more like guidelines. I think if we're honest, many of us can be like pirates when it comes to our code, the Bible. We can view the Bible more like guidelines rather than rules. So, when faced with a difficult decision, rather than choose God's code, we choose what's most convenient for us. We choose our way over God's way. We must be careful not to take this too far. However, we shouldn't look at the Bible as just rules we have to follow, because this leads to a life of legalism, judging others, and hypocrisy, just like the Pharisees in Jesus' time. But I think we shouldn't look at the Bible as guidelines or strictly just rules. I think we should start looking at the Bible more as blueprints, blueprints for how we live this life and how we are to have eternal life. And the thing about blueprints is that we don't have to follow them, but if we don't, the outcome will look a lot different than originally designed. And so let's, for example, take a look at this bridge. It's a pretty straightforward bridge, and the blueprints for it. Now let's see what happens when you slightly adjust things and don't trust the blueprints. See, oftentimes when we deviate just a little bit from the original design, the end product can't even fulfill its original purpose. So, what is your honest view of the Bible? Do you view the Bible as guidelines where you pick and choose which ones you want to follow? Do you view it as rules, where you feel justified in keeping each and every one of them all the time, or do you view the Bible as blueprints, which is God's overall plan for your life and His calling for how you can serve Him in everything you do? So let's take a look back at John's situation. John's situation is all too familiar in our churches today, but if we're honest, what would we do in John's situation? Most of us. Would tend to take the easy way out, not just when it comes to something like divorce, but when it comes to fleeing, sex, fleeing from sexual immorality, when it comes to loving our neighbors, when it comes to honoring our parents, and when it comes to giving when we are struggling financially. We want our happiness over God's happiness, but happiness is a funny thing. The ones who seek after it usually find the hardest. They Are the hardest to find. The ones who seek after it usually can't find it. If we go to Proverbs 16:20, it reads, "Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord." In a book back in Psalms 144, verse 15, it says, "Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord." And that word for blessed in the Hebrew is called the word asher. Which could be translated to blessed or happy. They're kind of synonymous terms. So, based on these verses, it seems that happiness isn't something that should be sought but obtained only as a byproduct of serving the Lord. But does this mean if we follow God's blueprint that life will be easy or easier for us? 
will know life will actually probably be a lot harder, especially at first. But happiness isn't something worth having unless it is accompanied by joy. And joy is something that sustains you each and every day, not something that is fleeting and hard to catch. But how can life be hard and full of joy? Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus here even raises the stakes. But how can we be joyful and bear our own cross? Jesus then says in verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. So it seems that if we sit down and count the cost, it might not be worth it. Most people, or some people, do view this as too costly. But their problem is that they focus on the temporary, but the Bible warns us to focus on the eternal, which answers the question of how we can be joyful and bear our own cross. The answer lies by focusing on the eternal, not being swayed by the day-to-day, but constantly thinking on the things that will matter in eternity. So what does this have to do with divorce? Why are we even covering divorce? Well, first, we need to figure out exactly what the Bible has to say on the subject. There are many misconceptions and views about divorce in the church, and we need to figure out exactly what the Bible has to say on it. Second, divorce is rarely talked about in the church. I, for one, have never even heard a sermon on divorce before researching for my own sermon. I found a big reason that the church usually doesn't preach on it or talk about it is that we struggle with it so much. We're more comfortable talking with things such as homosexuality or abortion, which are really important topics, but we don't need to just talk about those topics and neglect the other ones. So what does the Bible actually say about divorce? Well, first I want to acknowledge a view held by many prominent pastors, John Piper being one of these pastors, who say divorce is not even recognized by God. The first verse I want y'all to turn to is in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, and we'll read the first teaching that Jesus has on divorce in the Bible. So in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, we read, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So we see here that Jesus does acknowledge divorce, but he says, he points it back to the blueprint that God designed it, that since the beginning, divorce was never part of the plan. But Moses said that it was part of the plan now because of their hardness of heart. And this gives us our first reason why someone could get divorced, 
and that would be on the basis of sexual immorality. So another reason why I think divorce is clearly recognized by God is that God actually divorces Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, it reads, She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had her sent away with the decree of divorce. So clearly God recognizes divorce if God divorces his own people, Israel. But why did God divorce Israel? I mean, how could he? Some of you may be thinking, will God divorce me? Well, first I want to address the first point to how could God divorce his own people, Israel? And this is, the answer lies in Israel's great evil that they committed against God. Israel feared other gods. They sacrificed to them. They made wooden statues and worshiped them. And they even sacrificed their children to copy the surrounding cultures at that time. Israel actually abandoned God. But God still offers restoration in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12, just four verses later. And we read it. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. So this is actually a pretty radical idea for the time because it would have been unthinkable to go back to a spouse who had cheated on you with numerous different people. But God, who sees his people cheating on him with numerous other gods, offers clear restoration and mercy to all those with a repentant and contrite heart. And to the second question, how do I know if God divorces his own people, will he divorce me? We know God won't divorce us because he doesn't see us when we put our faith in Christ. He just sees Christ's sacrifice for us. We read this idea in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, which says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here we see that God doesn't see our sin and our faults and our failings anymore, but he sees his perfect sacrifice for us. And this sacrifice is available to all, but it only counts for you if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you from God's wrath. So if God recognizes divorce, what are the reasons the Bible gives that a man could get divorced? Well, before we get into those specific reasons, I want to look at the cultural context of the time. And to do that, if you would turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we'll start in verse 1. So we read in verse 1, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. And the key word in that verse is the word indecency. And this word was taken to mean two different things. And the Jews actually had two camps, depending on which side you took. There's the house of Shemai that said that word indecency meant only adultery. So you could divorce your wife only for adultery. The house of Halal, though, said that word indecency means basically anything that your wife does that you don't like, you can divorce them. And so this context is important 
because they were asking Jesus to choose a side and they were trying to trick him because if he chose one side, then the other side was going to be mad at him. And if he chose the other side, the other side was going to be mad at him. And instead of just choosing a side, Jesus kind of turns it back on the people. And he says, by raising the stakes, that you were never called to be separated. And Moses only said this because of your hard hearts. So Jesus was not talking to a divorced woman and giving grace to those who are affected by it. But she was talking and condemning, but he was talking and condemning the Pharisees for trying to trap him in a question. So then, in what situations does God allow for divorce in the Bible? Well, we already laid out one in Matthew 19:9, which is also found in Matthew 5:32, which says that whoever divorces his wife, or whoever gets divorced except for sexual immorality and remarries, commits adultery. So God allows divorce in the case of sexual immorality. The second situation can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. In this verse, it says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, for God has called you to peace. So the context of this verse is showing that when you a lot of the people in the early church were becoming believers. And when one was a believer and one wasn't, and the unbelieving spouse would leave, Paul's saying, you don't need to chase them or you stay married to them, let them leave. So the second reason divorce is allowed is if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave. So the third situation where divorce is allowed can be abused, but I think God gives a reason in the case of radical harm or endangerment to one spouse or the other, that seems to be a legitimate situation where God allows for divorce. So what's the case? Well, I already laid out that Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, not the victims. He was giving the general blueprint, but he wasn't answering the what if questions. So biblically speaking, why should radical harm or endangerment be a legitimate situation for divorce? Well, if you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, we'll read about the Sabbath and how Jesus' disciples were not keeping the Sabbath according to the Pharisees and what Jesus said about that situation. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, we read, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the the guiltless. So here we see in the law, there were no exceptions for eating the bread like David did, but in David's extreme situation, it was permitted. The same could be said about the priests not keeping the law and the Sabbath, but in their situation, it was permitted. And so we get a biblical principle from this passage that we need to be careful with, but the idea is that we take 
not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law behind it. And if we just look at the letter of the law, we can end up in situations like this. We see that there's, they copied the right part of the blueprints, but they were missing the whole point of why it was written down like that. So I believe that God calls us to use wisdom and discernment when it comes to situations like harm and abuse in marriage. Jesus warns us not to be like the Pharisees who condemned the guiltless, but to be like Jesus who showed mercy to the adulterous woman that was being stoned. So we see when divorce is allowed, but what about remarriage? Well, it stands to reason that if you legitimately get divorced for one of those three situations, sexual immorality slash adultery, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, or harm or abuse, that it follows that God would allow for remarriage. What if you got a divorce for any other reason, though? Well, Jesus calls it adultery, as we saw in the Matthew passage. But I think one more reason that remarriage could still be possible is if you get divorced and your former spouse remarries. This seemingly breaks your connection completely to your former spouse and ends your bond with that person. So if you turn your Bibles back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, we'll see why this is the case. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So this shows that a spouse can remarry because this, this passage shows that going back to your first spouse after they get remarried would be wrong. So given all this information, if you get divorced illegitimately and your former spouse does not get remarried, then I believe the Bible calls you to singleness or to be reconciled to your former spouse. This is why the disciples in Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, after the ones we just read, say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. See, the call for marriage is an extremely high one and should not be taken lightly. I also want to note that just because you can get divorced doesn't mean you should get divorced or you have to get divorced. In fact, forgiveness is what makes us like our Father in heaven who forgives us. In some cases, being separated for a time might be the more wise decision. Specifically when it comes to situations of abuse and harm, Separation seems to be the immediate thing that one should do. However, I want to make it clear that the church should absolutely acknowledge all legitimate divorces and say that the spouses are not bound to stay married. But why do most people actually get divorced? Statistics change depending on who you ask, but the top reasons are money, arguing, no premarital counseling, lack of intimacy, lack of compatibility, 
lack of family support, health problems, physical appearance, getting married too young, getting married for the wrong reasons, lack of communication, and lack of equality. Other reasons are listed, such as infidelity and abuse, like we talked about. But the professing people who said that these were the reasons they got divorced said that these things were often the straws that broke the camel's back. Their marriage was already over, in a sense. So the top reasons are not really abuse or infidelity, but people not wanting to save their marriages, not wanting to work to save their marriages. They tend to want to take the easy way out. Forget about for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. It has now become for better, for richer, in health, when I feel loved and cherished, and until I am not happy anymore. Elizabeth Elliot once said, "The world looks for happiness through self-assertion. The Christian knows that joy is found in self-abandonment." This idea is from Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, that says, "For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it." People get divorced because they don't want God's blueprint for their life. Saint Augustine, in his work called the Confessions, when he was speaking to God, wrote, "Without you, what am I to myself, but my own, but a guide to my own self-destruction?" See, this quote shows that when we feel like we know what's best instead of God, we often, instead of happiness, find misery. Instead of joy, we find sorrow. So, what's the secret to a lifelong marriage? Well, before I tell you, I want to address some of you thinking, "What does this kid up here know? How long has he been married? What knowledge could he possibly have to give me?" And it's true that there's many things that I don't know. I have been married for four years, four great years, I might add. <laughs> But no, I'm not a marriage counselor. But I do have an extremely strong backing. I have infinite wisdom and knowledge available to me at all times, and you actually have it too. It's the very word of God, the blueprints for life. So I take comfort in the fact that while I might change, God's word will never change. So what is the secret then? Well, it's actually more simple than you think. You don't need a self-help book, a how-to book. There's no secret fix or formula. Only simple trust in God and His Scriptures. Which is the same way you navigate through your Christian through your Christian walk. God has given you the ability, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to handle every trial and temptation you face. In First Ten, in First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirteen, we read, "No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape." That you may be able to endure it. So this these verse this verse proves that marriage is never too hard. You are never stuck in misery or hopelessness. But with Christ, there is always hope. So Scripture lays out that husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Wives are called to respect their husbands and to submit to them 
as, as the church submits to Christ. Our calling is to unite as one equal team to fulfill God's calling for our lives, which is our real higher calling. See, marriage isn't something that is just meant to last, but marriage is meant to be something that flourishes. Marriage isn't meant to be a duty, but a covenant that is filled with joy, love, happiness, and devotion. But what about those of us in the church who are divorced? Where do we go from here? How does the church help our own who have a troubled past? Well, for those of you who are divorced, you should know that if you were cheated on, abandoned, abused, or harmed by your former spouse in any way, that God sees you and is there to comfort you in your pain. And we as the church will do our best to help bear your burden with you. On the flip side, if you got divorced and you know that it wasn't right, but it happened and you're just trying to move on, know that if you've trusted Jesus as your savior, he has forgiven you and washed you clean. God still may be calling you to reconciliation or singleness, however, not because God is mean or God is a tyrant, but because God has such a high view of the covenant of marriage that he created. So what are our takeaways from today? Well, the first takeaway is we need to not be afraid to talk about this issue. We need to be open and unashamed to talk about every part of scripture, not just what is easiest to preach on and discuss. Second, we need to put God's will above our own will. Third, we need to love those in the church who are struggling with their past in whatever capacity that might be. We also need to warn the next generation on what exactly marriage is and what marriage isn't. We need to explain to them and have them weigh the costs. Finally, we need to realize that ignoring God's word is not only just going against his commands, but his blueprint and design for our lives. When we ignore the Bible, the problem is not that just that we break God's law, but that we live a life full of more pain, more heartache, and purposelessness. And let me just say, when talking about the Bible's blueprints on life, it's important to know that first and foremost, God's blueprint for your life is to be reconciled to him. And the only way that can happen is if you repent of all your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior. So if you feel a calling to do that today, or you have any questions on what that means, talk to me, talk to Jason, or talk to anybody else in this church, because nothing is more important than being reconciled to God. So let's close in prayer. God, I ask that we wouldn't waste our lives chasing on happiness and what we want, but that we, would be, that, but that we would pursue you and your truth alone. I pray that we wouldn't be afraid to talk about any part of your word. And I pray that we would start taking your word more and more seriously. I pray for all those who are struggling today with their past mistakes and sins, and I hope that they would feel your comfort and hope. I pray that above all, we would desire you above everything else. I pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that we don't want to follow our ways, but we want to follow your ways. I pray for all the other sermons that are going to be preached in this sermon series. And finally, I pray for all of Galveston, that every knee in Galveston would bow and confess 
that you are Lord of all. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.